Our catechism text this evening is Lord's Day 7, but before we look at that, I'd like to read with you Romans chapter 4. Now, Romans, as we've heard before, Romans comes in three parts, has three sections. The first speaks of our sin and misery. That's what we find starting about the mid midpoint of chapter 1 to the midpoint of chapter 3. And then from the middle of chapter 3 on to the end of chapter 11, it talks about our salvation. And then beyond that, it talks about the gratitude and the service that we give to God in response. But chapter 4 is right toward the start of that talk of our salvation. And it speaks to us about how we receive that salvation. The end of chapter 3 kind of gives us a quick summary where our salvation is found. And then, how do we receive it? Later, the apostle will talk about what Jesus did to bring it about and how God ordained those who would come. But first, we talk about the path to salvation. How do we receive what God has done in Christ? And he says there, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. Not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who, de- who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Amen. Now, Lord's Day 7 speaks of that means to salvation, speaks of faith. Asking, first of all, are all men saved through Christ, just as all men were lost through Adam? And the answer is no. Only those are saved who by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his blessings. What is true faith? True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ... Not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. What then must a Christian believe? Everything God promises in the gospel. That gospel is summarized for us in the articles of the Christian faith, a creed beyond doubt, and confessed throughout the world. And what are these articles? Well, there we find the Apostles' Creed that we've already this evening confessed. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know exactly how old I was, but I remember as a child having the sudden realization that really prompted a massive shift in my understanding. It was the realization that the choices I make what I believe, what I'm going to do, whom I'm I'm going to follow, that those choices that I make in my day-to-day life could have life-changing implications, could alter the very course of my life. It was the realization that my choices matter. Now, that might sound obvious to you, but if it does, that means you're an adult or well on your way to becoming one. Because children, they get consequences, but their idea of consequences are immediate, right? Little boys learn quickly that if they do something daring, if they dash up a tree, they can get oohs and ahs and applause, and if they fall out of the tree, then they'll get pain, right? They, they learn quickly that if they obey their parents, it'll get them a pat on the head. If they disobey, it'll get them a pat somewhere else, right? They get the idea of consequences, But most of those consequences are immediate. Most of those consequences are short-lived. At the most, it's a consequence that lasts a few days or a week if they get grounded. But at some point, every child comes to recognize that some consequences are lifelong. Some consequences are even beyond that. At some point, everyone starts to realize the choices I make, the things I do, the things I believe, these will shape the course of my forever after. That's an excellent lesson for us to learn, something that we must grasp 
concerning our standing with God. Children, young people, understand you have been raised hearing God's Word. You've been raised hearing who God is and what He's done and what He has promised. And that's a good thing. That is a rich blessing. However, those promises that God made are not automatic. They don't just happen to everyone who hears about them. You must, and one way or another, you will respond to those promises. And how you respond, whether with faith or with indifference, how you respond will have a dramatic impact on your eternity. Your choices matter. Your response to God and to His Word matters. And only one response will bring you the result that blesses. And that's the response of faith. And that's really the lesson of Lord's Day 7. Here we see that our mediator saves all who receive Him by faith. That's a a simple message. But it's an essential message for us to grasp. Our mediator saves all who respond to Him by faith. And as we explore the nature and the significance of faith, we're going to start by considering what faith does for us. And then we're going to move on to, to really defining faith. What is it? And then, Lord willing, we'll look at the content, very briefly, the content of faith. Looking first, then, to what faith does, we see that it establishes unity with our Savior. Now, our catechism starts in a very logical place, given the context. Remember, in the first two Lord's Days, as we looked at this summary of the Christian faith, we saw the misery of mankind, and we saw that it all arose from what Adam did in the garden, from the sin that he committed. Because of that sin, we all became guilty, all of mankind. We all became corrupted in sin, all of mankind. And that means that all of mankind was cut off from God, was condemned before God. And then in Lord's Day 5, we talked about justice. What is the demand of justice to those who are in their sin? And of course, that's all of mankind, isn't it? So then Lord's Day 6, we saw what that mediator would look like, that substitute who would be able to rescue us from the demands of justice. The logical question that follows is, for whom did that mediator come? That one who is truly God and truly man, who is truly able to absorb the cost, the the demand of justice for those who have sinned, For whom did he do that mediatorial work, that saving work? Was it for all of those who were plunged into sin? Was it for all of those who were set at odds with God or for less than that? It's a logical question. And the answer, according to Lord's Day 7, is no, Jesus did not come to save all of mankind. He came to save particular men and women those who desire what He came to do, those who recognize the misery of their sin. He came for those who have faith and only for them because they are the ones who desire to have a relationship with God. They are the ones who would cling to Jesus rather than their sin. It is those who have faith for whom Jesus came. 
Now understand that when we say that, that implies a definition of faith that is radically different than what we hear in the world. We hear lots of folks in our culture talk about the need for faith. You've got to have faith. But what do they mean? Generally, when they talk about faith, they're talking about an empty hope, a groundless longing. They hope for some outcome. They hope for some result, but they don't have a reason for expecting that to happen. They're just thinking positive thoughts, embracing good vibes. The essence of faith to those outside of Christianity is merely a longing for something they cannot buy or accomplish. But none of that is what the Bible talks about when it refers to faith. Biblical faith is a commitment of heart and mind that establishes a relationship. Kids, did you get that? It is a, a commitment of heart and mind that establishes a relationship. When God called Abraham in Ur of the Chaldeans, God was still a stranger to him. He knew of this God, but that's about it. He didn't really know what God was like. He didn't grasp the sovereign power of God. And so God drew him to himself formed a relationship with Abraham that taught Abraham that God was trustworthy, that God was powerful, that God was good. He taught Abraham bit by bit. Abraham's faith wasn't perfect at the start. Taught him to trust God, to follow God, to obey the Lord, that that was the path of blessing, that that was the path of life. And it began with a simple childlike faith that joined Abraham to God. But to be clear from the start, faith, Hebrews 4 emphasizes this, faith is not a work of man. By a work, I mean something that a man does or accomplishes, like works of penance that the Catholic Church commands or, or the keeping of the five pillars that the Muslim needs to accomplish. Romans 4 is emphatic that faith is not to be regarded as a work because a work, something that a man accomplishes, is meritorious. It's something that deserves a wage, that earns something in response. But instead, Romans 4 emphasizes that faith involves simply believing the Lord. It's counted as something that it's not. It's worthy not by what it does, but by the one in whom it trusts. Faith is not a work that earns, but merely a means of entering a relationship with God. And that faith-generated relationship is intimate. Consider how Abraham was blessed through his faith. What did we hear in Romans 4? Verse 3, he was counted by God as righteous. Verse 7, like David... His lawless deeds were forgiven and his sins were covered. Verse 13, he became an heir of the world itself. Verse 17, he became the father of nations. All of that God promised and delivered to Abraham through his faith. Not through anything Abraham earned or accomplished or deserved. In fact, Genesis is very clear that every time Abraham came up with an idea of what he needed to do, he made a mess of things. Abraham thought he would be in danger from the foreigners among whom he lived. So he said to his wife, you call yourself my sister. That'll keep us safe. 
twice, that almost resulted in absolute tragedy. Abraham was waiting for the promised child, and it didn't seem like, like that child was coming, so he and his wife hatched the plot that he would take his wife's servant and have a child by her. Made a mess of things, made a mess of their family life. It was only when he trusted in God that things went well. Trusted in God that the promises came to pass. And the same is true for us. By faith, what Abraham received becomes ours. Righteousness in the sight of God, along with forgiveness of our sins. Becoming heirs of the world as we're adopted as children of God. Leading others to salvation that they might know God's blessing with us. All of that becomes ours, not by what we earn, not by what we accomplish, but by faith which brings us into a relationship with God. Hebrews 3 verse 14 tells us, We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our original confidence. That's another way of saying faith. If we trust in the Lord, we have come to share in Christ. That word indicates a joining, a participation that's intimate. By faith, we are united to Christ such that His death on the cross pays for our sin. Such that the righteousness of His life is counted as ours. Such as the promises which God has made in Christ are attributed or are imputed to us. All of it is counted to ours by faith. Because it's the instrument that unifies us to our Savior. So what is it? What is this faith that is so essential to giving us a relationship with God and bringing us into His promises? Well, what we see from our catechism, but really from God's Word, is that faith embodies confidence in our Savior. That's our second point. Our catechism says faith comprises three things. First of all, knowledge. True faith is not contrary to facts. And it's not something we believe regardless of facts. True faith, biblical faith, is, is a belief, a knowledge, an understanding that rests on facts. If your faith is to be real, it must rest on the truth. Who is God? What has He done? What has He said? What is the significance of God's works and God's words? How has He revealed Himself to us? And what of that must we know? That's the basis. That's the foundation of our faith. This knowledge involves all the history and the promises that we find in the Bible. True faith rests on all that the Bible says. That history, those promises of God are essential to our faith. And the second aspect of that is belief. It's not enough to know what the Bible says about who God is and what He's done. We have to believe it. We have to believe that it's true, that He truly did what He claims in the Bible to have done. That He truly meant the promises He spoke in the Bible. You know, in, in Romans 4, we heard a number of times Abraham believed God. The verb believe, pistuo, is the verb form of the word pistis, which is rendered faith. We might accurately render that Abraham faithed in God. It's the same root. It's the same idea. So it's not just an academic thing. It's the fullness of what faith is. 
And it does start academically. It does start with a knowledge of what God's Word says and believing that it's true. And it goes beyond that. Hebrews 11 famously says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now that's a matter of knowledge, of belief. We might not be able to see God having made the world, but we believe that He did do it. We might not be able to see Jesus' miracles or understand how He did them, but we believe the testimony of the Gospels that He did these things that they record Him doing. So Hebrews 11 begins with those same ingredients to faith, knowledge and belief. But then it says, For by it the people of old received their commendation. And then we find examples. By faith Abel offered a more righteous sacrifice. By faith Enoch was taken up into heaven. By faith, Noah was saved by the flood. By faith, Abraham embraced a glorious promise. Notice how personal, how experiential those examples are. We aren't talking about something academic and clinical. We're not talking about promises that are untouchable. These people, these saints of old, embraced promises that personally affected them. In other words, they believed what Abraham believed. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, all of them heard the promises of God and believed he is able to do it and he is able to bless me through it. Knowledge, belief, and assurance. Faith is personal. It's not just knowing and believing that God is real and that He's done all this stuff. It's believing that He did it for me. I love how our catechism puts it. That not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, have been granted salvation. Perhaps you say, well, how can I know that He did that for me? Well, that's simple. It's because He promised that He will receive everyone who comes to Him. He will save everyone who trusts in Him. And not one who comes will ever be cast out. So if you come to Him, if you trust in Him, if you believe in Him, then He did do it for you. And we must not doubt the promise that He made. No matter matter whether we feel forgiven, no matter whether we still feel guilt for the sins that we've committed, we do. But nonetheless, God promised and so we take him at his word and we believe he did this also for me looking to the Lord not to ourselves not to our worthiness which of us is worthy but looking to him we trust like Abraham we trust God's promise that he will make us his people Genesis 17 that God will count us righteous through our faith that through Jesus death and resurrection Our sins have been paid for and we have been given entrance into God, into God's presence. With Abraham, we must be fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Verse 21. And therefore, like the criminal on the cross at Jesus' side, we plead with confidence, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now understand, such faith comes only from God himself. His word 
forms faith as it is proclaimed to us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we discover that we are born again through the word of God that is preached to us. It's the very end of chapter 1. Romans 10 verse 17 declares to us, Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. As we hear that word, God the Holy Spirit imparts the power to transform us. He's the one, says 1 Corinthians 2 verse 12, who enables us to understand what God reveals to us. He's the one, according to 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, who causes us to call on Jesus as Lord. Faith is His work through and through, and yet we must be actively involved. We must hear the word that is proclaimed to us and ponder its significance. We must pray for the power to receive it aright. We must confess Christ according to the truth that we hear. We must show our faith by its fruit. But God is the one who is acting in and through us to form that faith. So the question that needs to prompt in every one of us is, do I have it? Do I know and believe and confidently trust the Son of God who saves? If you do, then give all the glory to Him because He's the one who caused the Word to be proclaimed to you and taught you to understand it and gave you that knowledge and belief and, and assurance. And if you don't or if you don't know, then ask. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his promise. That's his assurance. And no matter how we feel, no matter what we've done, his promise is true. And we can be fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. But the final question arises, and that is what? Must we believe? Is there some minimum requirement? Some truth that is non-negotiable? Well, that's the last thing that Lord's Day 7 leads us to consider. And that's that true faith embraces the truth of our Savior. What do you think? It says Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What do you think that Abraham believed? I mean, he was saved and he was saved through Christ. Romans 4 is very clear about that. So what then did Abraham believe that enabled him to be saved? Did he have a, a well-rounded knowledge of soteriology and pneumatology, the study of salvation and the study of the Holy Spirit? Had he given careful study to eschatology, the study of the last things? Was he able to recite forward and backward the Athanasian Creed? Clearly not. In fact, many of the truths that our children know well from catechism class had not yet been revealed to mankind. And yet Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. What he believed was filled with shadows. Verse 18, he believed he would be the father of many nations. What would that look like? How would that come to pass? He had no idea. Verse 19, he believed that God would bring forth the promised child despite Abraham's age. How would that come to pass? And how would the birth of that child and the birth of the children subsequent to that child bring about the fullness of the promise in which he hoped? He didn't know. Verse 21, that was his answer. 
I believe God's promise and I believe that God is able to bring it to pass. How he's going to do that, but I believe that he will. I believe that he can. That is key. Abraham was short on the details. He didn't understand the mechanism by which he would be saved. But Abraham knew that God had promised to be his God and to do everything necessary to make that happen. And so Abraham believed that God was able to bring the promises to pass. And God counted it to him as righteousness. We must believe all that God has revealed to us. The gospel, our catechism points out, is beautifully summarized in the Apostles' Creed. That means that we need to believe that God made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. We need to believe that God sent His Son, fully God yet born of a woman, to live the perfect life, to die the perfect death, to rise triumphant over death, eventually to come back to judge the living and the dead. We need to believe that God the Holy Spirit applies Jesus' work giving us forgiveness of sin, gathering together and preserving the church. We need to believe that not because the church has made that its confession, but because this is what the Bible proclaims. And with Abraham, we must be fully convinced that God is able to do what He has promised. What I'm trying to say is there's no magic formula for what we must believe. What did the criminal on the cross beside Jesus believe? Clearly, he knew that Jesus was different. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus didn't deserve to be hanging on that cross because of anything that he had done. But did he understand that he was from of old, the one through whom the Father created all things? Did he understand how Jesus dying on the cross was going to bring about his salvation? Did he understand that Jesus would sit at the right hand of the Father for hundreds and thousands of years, reigning over all things for the good of His people? What He knew was that Jesus was bringing a kingdom. What He knew was that Jesus could save Him despite His unworthiness. And so looking on Jesus... He confessed, fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. What has God revealed to you of the gospel? That is what you must believe. Have you read the Bible a dozen times through from cover to cover? Then by the power of God within you, believe the words on every page as truth. And believe that God revealed it all to you for your salvation, that He did what He did and promised what He promised for your salvation, and you shall be saved. Do you simply believe? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Then believe. And you shall be saved. God wants us to continue growing in our knowledge of who He is and what He's done that we might more completely glorify Him, honor Him, worship Him. 
But whatever he has revealed, this we must believe as true, never doubting. Such a temptation in our modern world, isn't it? Probably not just in our modern world, but we certainly see it today. Seems like the more learned men get, the more they want to explain away the wonder of God's word. Oh, that flood, it maybe wasn't a full worldwide thing. It was probably just localized, which is baloney, but whatever. You know, they, they want to be smarter than what the Bible actually says. Don't do that. Don't do that. Well, the walls of Jericho, did they really fall? Did it just seem like, like they gave in quickly and that was, that was poetic? No, don't do that. If God's word says it, then let everyone else deny it. You believe. You trust. You have confidence that he did it and he did it for you. What is faith? It is in the end to be fully convinced that God is able to do what he promised. Knowing what he has said, believing it to be the truth and trusting with assurance granted by the Holy Spirit that he did it for me. That is the faith that we're called to embrace. Knowing that he saves all who receive him by such faith. What we do, my friends, matters. How we respond to this word God sets before us week after week after week matters. It's very easy, especially when we grow up with something, to scorn it, to treat it lightly. We have grown up in a land filled with freedom. And how many multitudes are willing to throw that off for the man-forged chains of socialism and communism. They take lightly the blessings with which they've been raised. We have been raised in the midst of peace. How many would willingly cast that off for conflict? Taking lightly the blessings with which they've been raised. Well, we've been raised with the blessings of God's word, of God's promises. Let us never take that lightly. Let us never scorn it, but rather let us pray daily that God would cause us to take up those promises with wonder. That despite our sin, despite our unworthiness, God would love us that much to send His Son to endure what we deserved, that we might know the joy of the new heavens and the new earth eternally, that we might know the joy of peace and the love of God eternally. Amazing. Stand in awe. But believe every word. Believe He did it for you. Confident that God is able to do all that He has promised. Amen. Let's pray. Father, You are our only hope. Nothing that we do, nothing that we accomplish, nothing that we seek to earn can provide what we need. But you have done it all through your son Jesus. Teach us to believe that. To stand in wonder and awe that you would love us that much and exercise such power for us. And Lord, teach us not questioning the hows or the whys, 
but simply trusting in our Heavenly Father. Teach us to believe that you have done it all for us. And teach us too, Lord, to respond with faith, or with thanksgiving. To give ourselves over to expressing our gratitude for all that you have done. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. In response, let's confess together in song. It's not what we've done, it's what he's done that matters. And it's in him and his works that we trust. As we stand and sing together number 389.